0: If you have your Bibles with you, if you could please open them or turn them on to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. We're going to dip into uh, a little bit of an Old Testament prophet. Let me just begin. Um, My name is Don DeVries. I guess you're probably familiar or aware of that. Um, I come uh, just... With with grateful heart to grateful heart, uh, your your welcome your your warm welcome was just uh, so engaging and, and we're so grateful for it. My wife Tricia and my son Ben is here, and then there's a cadre of folks from our church down in Covenant Life that came to join us. So, but it's it's a delight to see uh, faces and friends from way back in our history, as well as some new friends and new faces we're we're getting to meet. Uh, these recent days. So it's a delight to be with you. Let's just open and we're going to begin. We're going to dive into the kind of middle of this chapter and uh, we will take a look at what Isaiah calls beholding our God. So let's begin in verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 40. Go up. "...on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God." Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed. The dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold. Behold. The nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast for it, it cast for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, but he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? It has been told you from the beginning. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its habitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's just bow our hearts before the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. It is precious to us. Lord, though the grass withers and the flower fade, Lord, your word will endure forever. And Lord, we just ask that this morning you would peer from the pages of this text. Lord, address us. These verses are about you. Lord, reveal to you, to us a greater vision of who you are and help us, so oh God to look up and see our great God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, most of you are probably familiar with the New Testament story of the violent storm on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus and his disciples were in, and the disciples themselves were fearing for their very lives. Jesus was in the back, and he was sound asleep. And they woke him up after some period of time. And they said, Jesus, aren't you concerned that we're perishing? He woke up. He stood up. He commanded creation, said, peace, be still. And all of a sudden, there was this silence. What was howling winds and crashing waves. And then he looked at his stunned and Bewildered and quiet disciples, he said, where is your faith? Now, I imagine that question penetrated to the very depths of their being. Because these disciples, many of which are fishermen, they knew that sea. They knew those violent storms. They probably had friends or family or fellow fishermen who probably had died in them. They didn't wake up Jesus asking about, we're perishing because they were guessing. When he looked at it and says, where, where is your faith? Well, their faith was in what they could see and feel and what they'd experienced. Their faith was in their circumstances, at least until they beheld the one who's had absolute authority and power over creation. I tell that story because the people, the Israelites in Isaiah 40, were similar to the disciples. Their faith was in the stark reality of what they could see and feel and what they'd experience. You see, the people addressed in Isaiah 40 were in exile. They had been carted off to Babylon. In chapter 39, the previous chapter, the Lord threw Isaiah because of Hezekiah's disobedience and because of the stark and the the rampant idolatry among the people, Isaiah foresaw foresaw captivity for the Israelites into Babylon. And that's exactly what happened. In In the early 600 B.C., Families and men like Daniel and Ezekiel and their families were carted off to Babylon. And in 586 BC, they came in and ransacked the entire city of Jerusalem. The temple and the city lay in ruins. The Jewish people were, had almost lost their identity. The land that the Lord had given to them, they were deported from. Jerusalem and the temple, the very presence of God, the, the center of God's worship The center of their spiritual life was lay in ruins. And the law, though they still had the law, they couldn't actually fulfill the law. It was compromised because they couldn't sacrifice at the temple like the prescribed law said. They were a defeated people, languishing The Babylonian army seemed invincible and unstoppable. The Babylonian king at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, was an absolute authoritative dictator. He was all-powerful. And the Babylonian gods, to their eyes, seemed a lot wiser and more powerful than the God of Israel. So you pick up their despair in verse 27. Look down at that and it says... Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, what they were saying was, God, where are you in all of this? Have you forgotten us? Do you care? That phrase, my right is disregarded, literally means my case keeps coming before you and it keeps getting dismissed. They felt hopeless, discouraged, and despairing. Where was their faith? Well, just like the disciples in that violent storm, their faith is in what they could see and feel and what they'd experienced. But aren't we the same way? In the midst of difficulty and trials and circumstances, sometimes it's the circumstances that fill our vision. And we ask the same questions. Maybe not out loud, but we ask them in the privacy of our own heart. But ultimate comfort in the midst of difficulty, doesn't always come through an explanation. It comes through the revelation of God himself. Ultimate comfort in the midst of trials and adversity comes when we look up and behold our God. And that's exactly what Isaiah does in these chapters to these languishing exiles. He points their eyes upward. So let's take a look and consider Isaiah's revelation of God. His portrait number one is God's incomparable greatness, starting in verse 12. He begins with the question, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Well, this is the hollow of my hand, and I did an experiment. I can get two teaspoons in there before it starts overflowing. Consider, consider the waters of the earth. The seas. Some of the, some of the depths are six miles. The, the great lakes, the rivers. Uh, just as a, as a point of reference, Lake Erie is 22, 227 trillion gallons. We have no idea how much water is on the earth. There's two thirds of the earth is filled with it. And yet our God measures it in the palm of his hand. And then he asked another question. Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Well, this is a span. I stretch my fingers out a little more. It goes about eight to eight and a half inches. Well, I could probably measure this podium with the span of my hand. Maybe I could measure this stage with some difficulty. But anything beyond that would be impractical. Let me tell you how big our universe is. We launched Voyager 1 in 1977. It's been going for 40 years at 38,000 miles per hour. And it's reached 11.3 billion miles from the Earth. And it hasn't even reached the edge of our solar system, which supposedly is 14 billion miles wide. Scientists say that the farthest point in our universe is a galaxy that is 13.3 billion light years away. Now, a stream, a beam of light travels at 186,000 miles per second. That means it can circle the earth seven times in one second. Imagine a stream of light going from the earth and just traveling nonstop for 13.3 billion years. I have a nickel mind. That's about a $300,000 idea. It just doesn't compute. But our God measures it with the span of his hand. It's just the size of the universe is just incomprehensible, but not to our God. And then he asked a third question. Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? That word measure literally means one third measure and probability to God, a small container. And all the dust of the earth is contained in it. And then lastly, he says, who has weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Consider the Himalayas, the Rockies, the Appalachian, the Alps. Oh, we could throw in Sugarloaf and Catoctin as well. Um, they'd probably tip the scales. But to us, the weight of these ranges is incalculable. And yet God weighs them in abouts. He understands, He knows it's not too big for Him. And then if you look over at verse 25 and 26, because He, he go, continues on with His incomparable greatness in creation. He says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. According to scientists, we have 10 trillion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. That's one with 24 zeros behind it. That's the number of stars. It's been said you could hold up a dime to a night star, and you basically would block out 15 million stars. We can only see about 5,000 with the naked eye. But God says here, and in Psalm 147, He determines the number of stars. He gives all of them their names. This portrait of our great God, he measures and weighs the universe like we measure and weigh trivial things. He gives names to millions and trillions of stars like we give names to our kids or our pets. And as Job has said, and these are but the outer fringe of his works, how faint the whisper we hear of him. Many years ago, my father, my uncle, my brother-in-law and I were heading out on a fishing trip. As we, the whole week had been stormy, but the day we had decided to go fishing, it turned sunny. So we decided to go ahead and go. As we rounded the inlet, we went from a sound out into the ocean in North Carolina. Uh, the waves started looking a little choppier. We had some hesitation. We said, we're going to go ahead and go forward. About 300 yards offshore, the waves got significantly bigger. And then it happened. Our 17-foot boat, which was predominantly used for skiing, was caught between two swells that must have been about eight feet high on each side. All we could see around us was water. And fortunately, my father was driving. He had the boat directed rightly, but those waves just broke over us. Thankfully, we weren't capsized, but our fishing trip ended rather abruptly. The dock around by the boat lift was a lot safer. I share that because that is often how life hits us. It's like, it's like we see and feel these experiences. It's like walls of water coming at us. And those circumstances fill our vision, and, and they are huge. And in the midst of that, God... It's very small. But the Lord, in sharing these words from Isaiah, wants both the ancient Israelites as well as ourselves to have a different perspective. The Jews languishing in exiles wondered, could God deliver them? Is he big enough? Is he powerful enough to deliver and to save? Isaiah's answer is a resounding yes. Yes. We don't languish in exile, but sometimes we languish in fear and worry and anxiety and despair or unbelief. Our circumstances, whatever it is, health or finances or job or children or marriage or school or schedule or future, it can, it can loom large. And we can ask the similar questions. Can God deliver me? Will he help me? Does he care? Is he powerful enough? Is he big enough for this situation? Isaiah's portrait of this incomparably great God is the same for us. The answer is a resounding yes. There have been times when circumstances in my own life have loomed large. And and God is just, if I share it with that, God is absent from the picture. I have to take these verses, these truths, these principles, and I have to talk to myself. I have to preach to myself. I have to remind myself that our God is incomparably greater than whatever I'm walking through. And when I can do that and then realize he's still in control too, peace settles on my heart. So let's look at the second portrait of Isaiah's, in Isaiah's passage. God's unfathomable knowledge and wisdom. I can pretty well say for everyone in this room our knowledge, our understanding, our wisdom is derived. What I mean by that is someone taught you to talk, someone taught you to read, someone taught you to think. Someone, whether a teacher or a book, taught you math and science and history and language and grammar and a whole host of subjects. Sometimes we learn formally in school, sometimes informally from family and friends. Sometimes we we. We model it from others who we have respect for. The point is, all our wisdom and knowledge, all our understanding is somehow learned from others. But that's not the case with God. God's wisdom and justice and understanding and knowledge originated within himself and is without equal. Look again at verses 13 and 14. Who has measured, literally directed the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? What Isaiah is saying in these verses, these questions, is that there's no consultant giving God advice. God didn't go to... Go to school to, and, and he's learning as he goes. God didn't go to school to learn how to be God or how to govern the universe. His wisdom originated in himself. And it's infinite. And it's unfathomable. And it's without error. Now this would have brought the Jews great hope. His wisdom does exceed the gods of Babylon. It Also should bring us great hope. God never makes mistakes in his management of our lives. Amen. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. You may go up on the stage. there it is there is no there are no loose threads in the providence of God. No stitches are dropped, no events left to chance. The great clock of the universe keeps good time, and the whole machinery of providence moves with unerring punctuality. The details and circumstances of our lives are not a mistake. The way we look, the family we've grown up in, the school you're going to, your, your gifts, your abilities, mentally, physically, your talents, the difficulties, all of it has been ordained by and allowed by a wise and all-knowing God. You know what? Our future is not up for grabs either. God is so infinitely wise and so immeasurably strong that he will order every detail of our future. For you young men and women in this room, that means your education and your schooling and perhaps a future husband or wife. You know, but in the midst of all that, sometimes we just don't understand what God is doing. But that doesn't mean he's not at work. That doesn't mean there isn't any point or purpose. That doesn't mean his wisdom isn't moving things in a direction that is for our good. What it just means is that we're small. We're limited in our understanding and we're weak. But we can trust that God is still good and he has our good in mind. This is a season of transition for my family and I. When I resigned from covenant life in May transition at the end of the month I did so without having another job uh, waiting I've never done that before but the situation required that I walk differently and you know what the Lord in his wisdom knew what I needed he know he knew I needed for whatever season lies ahead of me he knew the muscle of faith needed to be exercised. Oh, there are moments of fear and anxiety and worry. But there's been a growing faith in God's purposes and his promises and his plans, knowing that his wisdom has not made a mistake. Even, even when there's only enough grace for the next day, for the next step. Let's consider looking up as we consider portrait number three God's absolute supremacy over the nations. Look at verse 15 and through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing. Now, Isaiah uses a progression to show the insignificance of the nations before our great God. If he takes all the nations totaled together, their military might, their economic power, the richness of their culture and society. And for the Jews, it was dozens of nations, including Babylon, around their area. For us, it's 195 countries in the world. And you put them all together, they're like a drop in a bucket. Now, even to us, a drop in a bucket is pretty small. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He says they're not just like a drop in it, but they're like dust on the scales. Imagine going up to the cashier at the grocery store and say, Could you, could you wipe off the dust on the scales? I don't want to pay for the dust. My guess is that cashier would say, I think the fruit and vegetables are standing right in front of me. Because the dust on the scales, it's, it's insignificant. So are the nations compared to our God. But he progresses even further. He says, they're not only dust on the scales, but they're nothing. No, then he goes one step further. They're less than nothing. Nothing is emptiness, less than nothing is a black hole. I suppose it's a vacuum. To the despondent Jews who felt like the nation of Babylon was superior and supreme. This was a wonderful answer to their question. Is God bigger than our circumstances? Yes. Babylon was just a tool in the Lord's hand to discipline a covenant-breaking people. And ultimately, Babylon was no match for God when he delivered them and returned them to their land. The same is true for us. We, we live in a day... Uh, in which the description in Psalm 46 seems appropriate it says the nations rage the kingdoms totter at times it seems like aspects of our nation and the nations of the world are kind of careening toward lawlessness and metaphorically on fire but there's a greater truth that also follows in Isaiah in Psalm 46 it says he utters his voice the earth melts And he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Compared to the absolute supremacy of God, the nations are less than nothing. And then lastly, Isaiah completes his portrait by telling us that God is absolutely sovereign over the rulers of this earth. Look again at verses 21 through 24. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princesses to nothing and makes his rulers of the earth as emptiness." Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, and he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Not only the nations, but the kings and emperors are as nothing before the greatness of our God, completely subject to his sovereign control. Solomon writes in Proverbs 21, he says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's hard because we live in a different form of government to understand an ancient king. But an ancient king had absolute authority. He was the president, the Congress, and the entire justice system all rolled into one. His words were unchecked and his authority was unchecked and was absolute. But the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He raises them up for his purposes and then he blows on them and they're gone. And if God is absolutely authoritative over the rulers of the earth, think about the lesser authorities in our own lives. Teachers, parents, bosses. The wisdom of God has placed them over you And there's no mistake, and God is still absolutely sovereign over them. Even though they're sinful men and women, he still uses them for his purposes. And this brings us to our final section in verse 27 through 31, where Isaiah sums things up and points us again upwards. Look again at those verses. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. After Isaiah described their hopelessness and despair in words in verse 27, he directs them to look up. He's saying, Here's where you need to put your faith. Place your faith in the God who is eternal, who is the creator, whose strength is tireless, and whose wisdom is unfathomable. Because as creator, he possesses all the power and supremacy and authority and greatness that all these previous verses have talked about to wield his power for the good of his people. For as for tirelessness, his purposes will never be thwarted. He doesn't need to delay his purposes or to to step aside away from his purposes because he's tired. No, he needs no rest and his purposes will go forward. As for being eternal, he exists outside of time and space. Therefore, he sees the past, the present and the future all at the same time and with perfect clarity. He knew exactly what he was doing with these Jews. It's very interesting. After they were delivered from exile, idolatry was never a problem in ancient Israel. And he knows exactly what he's doing with us. He sees the past, the present, and the future that he has planned for us. And he will act in time to reveal all that his wisdom and his love have planned. Isaiah concludes this section in verse 30 and 31. He's stating that even the natural, seemingly natural and boundless energy of youth and young men will fail. But the Lord renews their strength. The Lord renews our strength as we wait on him. And waiting isn't passivity. Waiting isn't stuck in traffic on 270. Waiting isn't stuck in a long line at some store. No, waiting is complete dependence on God and a willingness to allow him to act in the way that he chooses. John Oswalt, in his commentary on Isaiah, writes, to wait on him is to admit that we have no other help, either in ourselves or or in one another, or in another. Therefore, we are helpless until he acts. That's our dependency. By the same token, to wait on him is to declare our confidence in his eventual action on our behalf. Thus, waiting in Hebrew is not killing time, but a life of confident expectation. Where is our faith this morning? Far too often when the storms of life hit, I'm like the disciples in the boat or the Israelites asking these questions addressed by Isaiah. My faith is in what I see, what I feel, and what I've experienced. But these perceptions can be deceptive. What the Lord wants for us is to look up and trust what God says in his word about his character and his promises over what we see. Let me close by reading a piece by a man named James Smith. It was written, I believe, probably to his congregation to encourage them coming into a new year in 1865. He writes, In whatever state, in whatever place, into whatever condition we may be, brought in to, in this new year. Let us seek grace to follow our Lord's loving advice, advice and look up. Look up to God. He is your Father, your friend, your Savior. He can and will help you. Look up for wisdom to guide you and he will direct your path. Look up for strength to enable you and his strength will be made perfect in your weakness. Look up for courage and the Lord will give courage to the faint and to those who have no might, he will increase strength. Look up for endurance to keep you and the God who preserves you will enable you to quietly bear the heaviest burden. Fellow Christian, are you fearful? Look up and hear Jesus saying to you, do not be afraid, I myself will help you. Are you discouraged? Look up. And your youth shall be renewed like the eagles and fresh light, comfort, courage shall be given to you. Are you desponding? Look up, for Jesus never breaks the bruised reed or quenches the smoking flax. Look up for all that you need, from all that you fear, through all that would obstruct your way. Run looking, work looking, suffer looking, and live looking to Jesus who is at the right, God's right hand in glory. Oh, look, look, look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are not a silent God, but you have disclosed yourself in the pages of this word. Thank you, Lord, for drawing our attention upward and outward. Lord, we are, we are like the disciples. We are like Isaiah's audience. Lord, we are weak and feeble. And Lord, oftentimes, the things of this earth, Lord, don't go strangely dim. They actually look bigger than they should. Father, we just ask that you help us, even this week and in this season, to look up. To look up. And behold the greatness of our God. To look up and to know that his wisdom is without error. To look up to know that he is completely in control. To look up and behold our great God. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.